Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today is another special edition of the podcast. As we record this podcast, we are just a few days removed from a dramatic press conference held by Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Patrick is a significant figure nationally among populist Republicans, and he is one of the most powerful government officials in the state of Texas. Patrick called his press conference to respond to a resolution passed by the Faculty Council of the University of Texas that reaffirmed the academic freedom of the university faculty to teach controversial subject matter in this case, namely critical race theory. A state-led measure to restrict public university activities relating to race was already on the horizon, and Patrick reaffirmed his personal commitment to taking aim at the university curriculum. More surprising, however, was Patrick saying that he would make it a top legislative priority to eliminate tenure for faculty at public universities in the state. He announced three-part plan that would abolish tenure for new faculty hires, make teaching critical race theory a cause for immediate termination for those with tenure, and to require those currently holding tenure positions to undergo annual reviews to determine whether they will retain their employment. Patrick's moves are likely to have repercussions for state universities across the country. There have already been talk in several Republican-leaning states about significantly modifying tenure, with the Board of Regents for the University System of the state of Georgia adopting an important tenure reform policy just a few months ago, which we talked about on the Academic Freedom Podcast. Tenure reform, including potential abolition, is now likely to be higher on the Republican agenda. In this episode of the podcast, I wanted to provide a broader context for thinking about the kinds of proposals that Republicans are now putting on the table. What is tenure for for university faculty and how does it relate to academic freedom? To help guide us through this territory, I'm joined by Matthew Finken. He holds the Swanland Endowed Chair in the College of Law at the University of Illinois. He is an expert in employment law and a particular significance for this conversation. He is the author of The Case for Tenure, which was published in 1996. And he was the co-author with Robert Post of Yale Law School of For the Common Good, Principles of Academic Freedom. So Matthew, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Happy to be here. So we were just talking a little bit um, before we uh, started recording about your uh, history um, uh, in the weeds of actually defending um, academic freedom cases, including, uh, as you mentioned, sort of the tail end of subversive activity cases, um, which seem uh, newly relevant uh, in thinking about some of the academic freedom issues uh, that are being um, uh, addressed by some of the anti-critical uh, race theory moves. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what that background looked like? Um, what were your sort of early uh, introductions to the academic freedom uh, debates? Well, I got out of law school in 1967 and took a job on the legal staff of the American Association of University Professors. 
And uh, the organization at that time, its primary function was to define and defend academic freedom through casework, through uh, committee reports, uh, and through amicus briefs. And the first thing that I did as a lawyer was to work on a friend of the court and amicus brief in the last of the series of uh, speaker of loyalty oath cases before the, before the U.S. Supreme Court. We were also involved in the so-called speaker ban laws, which would ban uh, communists or other subversives from being invited to speak on university uh, campuses and general uh, efforts to suppress what was considered seditious uh, utterance at that time. Obviously, that, uh, that um, episode in our history, which, uh, uh, thank God, faded for, uh, what, 40 years or so, is now recrudesced. It's the same impulse to suppress uh, that captures the legislature, that captures the popular will and finds expression in these efforts. And so the defenses that were being that are being mounted now resonate very strongly with what was happening 50 years ago. And how happy were you at the time about um, how far you could get courts to go? Um, uh, I think lots of people look at uh, the uh, judicial doctrine on these academic freedom issues and their relationship to the First Amendment um, are a little disappointed by how uh, messy uh, the court's uh, work on this um, has been. Um, The Supreme Court hasn't said a tremendous amount um, on academic freedom issues. A lot of work has been left to the lower courts uh, to try to work out uh, some of the details. Um, so, uh, from given your experience, were you fairly content with what the court um, and, the, and the federal courts more generally had managed to do, um, or were you ultimately disappointed by uh, how much progress you were able to make? Well, the cup is either half empty or full, right? I mean, the court has never fully embraced the idea that academic freedom is a subset of the First Amendment. It said lots of nice things, uh, which we lawyers call obiter dicta, which is also known as hot air. Um, after all, uh, uh, professors and professorial freedom is not written into the Constitution, unlike, for example, freedom of the press, which is in the Constitution. As we see, there's a, a flap going on even now as to the manner or extent to which the First Amendment really gives uh, uh, teeth to that, to that expression. On the other hand, I say half full because... The court started out being very uh, sympathetic to the efforts to uh, remove subversives from the classroom. And by the time they finished, they'd come full circle. Uh, and the, the, the dicta that they uttered is still pretty powerful dicta today that, that um, the, the classroom, that the, the professoriate or the schools even are the sort of priesthood of the democracy, that democracies need thoughtful, critical commentary uh, in order to survive and that um, the impulse to suppress, which uh, wells up in popular uh, expression, not just here, if you take a look at Poland or Hungary or just last, a few days ago, uh, uh, President Ortega of Nicaragua seized five of that nation's private universities. And authoritarian governments cannot endure uh, centers of, uh, of thoughtful dissent. They want to, the, the, the urge to suppress goes back to you know, must, must go back to biblical time or Mesopotamian times for that matter. Um, but we have adopted, we, we, the, prof- the profession has congealed around a, a set of principles which I think have, have stood pretty good stead. Yeah. Uh, I think there are courts that are sympathetic and get it. Um, the, the recent decision in Florida, for example, about the effort to prohibit professors from being expert witnesses was a very strong statement. 
so too the case going forward in Texas involving uh, the editor of a musicological journal mm -hmm. who was removed uh, as editor out of displeasure with uh, perfectly pure vanilla ac academic uh, discourse that happens to displease an interest group. So um, I, it may be that the last bastion we have is the courts, but there are courts and I think a fair number of judges. After all, the, the, we're getting ahead a little bit on tenure, but the, but, but the tenure of academic office was modeled on the tenure of office of federal judges. Hmm. That was a powerful influence that just as a judge had to be insulated from removal because of opposition to an unpopular decision. So too had professors, so long as they adhered to the canons of responsible scholarship, and the same would be true of a judge, so long as the judge has been faithful to the task, he can't be removed because you don't like the way he ruled on a or she ruled on a case, and you don't fire a professor because you don't like what, what uh, the, uh, the subject matter the professor is laying before the course. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Maybe federal judges will be a little sympathetic to uh, the situation with professors since they uh, have that in common of sharing uh, sort of relative insulation from outside pressures um, precisely in order to allow them to um, express some independence uh, in developing their opinions and being able to uh, take advantage of their expertise um, on, on the bench. Um, uh, maybe they'll have some sympathy for faculty in that situation as well. Well, I mean, I do, I do see, uh, it's not radical, but I do see greater sympathy on the federal bench because of how they're selected. And the, uh, then in uh, certain state courts where they have to run for election and being subject to popular will is simply part of their political um, universe. Yeah. Uh, they don't, they, they, some state courts have had a hard time understanding tenure. Uh, the federal judges understand it. Yeah. So when did you uh, cross the divide and leave the AUP and move into academia? Oh, I, that would be 1973. I took my first uh, teaching position. I've been here at Illinois for about 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as you said, um, uh, the primary focus uh, that we want to have today was sort of think through sort of the basics of the tenure system, how it works, why we have it. Um, uh, and, and you for sure are one of the experts um, in developing uh, that argument um, over time. So I'm um, hoping you can uh, help uh, walk us through uh, thinking, thinking about tenure. So maybe we ought to start with the basics. Um, what's the standard model for faculty tenure in the United States at this point? Well, look. Let me go to, to the, the justification for it, which sure. both academic freedom and tenure were closely conjoined in a, in a manifesto. There's no other word for it issued by the highest echelons of scholarship at that time. And that time was 1915. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, a fecund time in American history is the rise of the progressive movement and the rise of a profession that was beginning to s s come into its own. Uh, they, they were not clergy, uh, you know, teaching youth, callow youth on a, uh, because they were semi-retired or looking for a pulpit. They weren't uh, time servers appointed by, through a legislature or the like. They, so these were people, Arthur Lovejoy at uh, the Johns Hopkins, uh, uh, Roscoe Pound at Harvard, one could go down, John Dewey, mm -hmm. uh, John Wigmore, whom lawyers would know very well. They, they, they founded the organization and issued this manifesto and is still to me uh, the best statement and the best document that there is. And the argument for tenure, and again, modeled on the notion of federal judges is 
that after a professor has passed a reasonable period of probation, actually, it's quite a long period of probation. It's six years. And, you know, in industry, a probationary position is maybe six months or three or 30 days. It's a very long period of probation. And we'll get back to that in a second. But after you've, you've passed that period of probation, you should have permanence of office. The idea was that you wanted to do two things. We want people to feel free to uh, not to be sanctioned for their speech, their writing, their publication, so long as they have adhered to a professional standard of care. It's not just anything that comes out of a professor's mouth. It's the product of serious, and, uh, uh, serious research. Uh, and that, of course, resonated against the removal primarily of economists those days uh, for advocating uh, causes such as uh, municipal ownership of the trolley system, uh, which was anathema to entrenched economic interest. So the one limb was to protect academic freedom. Mm -hmm. The academic freedom was not secure unless the professor was secure in office. And the second uh, limb was that we want to, to secure to academe, to the professoriate, our best and brightest. Yeah. You're not going to get rich being professor. Well, maybe in medicine or surgery, you know, or computer science, maybe, but not in those days, and not in most disciplines today. But you, you, you oughtn't live in penury, and you certainly should not live uh, year to year uh, in in a, in a precarious economic circumstance. So, security of office. Uh, and the economic and economic security were, were the buttresses. Now, uh, what's in it for the institution? Uh, I think the, the, the uh, 1915 declaration did not address what we would now call a negative, the positive externality. Uh, the positive externality is a tenure decision means that you cannot, once you have tenure, you cannot be removed unless there is adequate cause to remove you, namely incompetence, neglect of office or some act of outrageous misconduct. Mm -hmm. uh, what, when you are a, a probationer for six years, uh, the burden of proof rests on the probationer. He is being or she is being probed. You have to justify to your colleagues, uh, primarily and then to the administration, that, that the repose of confidence is warranted, that you have every promise of professional competence and excellence. After that period is crossed, the burden shifts. Mm -hmm. the, the presumption is in favor of the incumbent. And if the institution wants to, believes that, the, that the, the incumbent is no longer satisfactory, then the burden proof rests on the institution to prove that. Now, I said, what's the positive externality? It's a tough decision. Because once you have, it's not a lifetime employment, that's a, um, that's a misnomer, it's not a sinecure. You may be removed, but it's difficult to remove professors, and it was meant to be difficult to remove professors. So it's a tough decision. And because it's a tough decision, if you err at all, you err on the side um, of, the, of, 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 uh, of caution. Uh, it's a conservative institution. Which means that you, you, do you lose some people who it turns out are better or will be better than their record of over six years has manifested? The answer to that is yes, it's a, it's a cost to the system. But it does weed out those who have not manifested their capacity to perform the job. Now, 
those are the justifications and those are the, 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 the so there was a, there's something there's something in it for the institution in terms of maintaining its quality um so maybe about that that question of sort of there's something in it for the institution um uh, there's also presumably some downsides for institutions of having a, a tenure system and certainly one of the things we hear about from some university leaders um uh, and would-be university leaders um, is a concern that tenure creates a kind of inflexibility um, uh, for the university that you can't easily change staff. And so if uh, uh, students suddenly become uh, not very interested in a particular major, for example, uh, you're stuck with all these professors um, uh, who are gonna be around for a long period of time, uh, despite the fact that students might not be very interested in working with them uh, any, anymore. Um, so how big of a downside is it for universities to make that kind of long-term commitment uh, to disciplines, to faculty, um, and keeping them around? And how much flexibility do universities have to work around that? Well, I think there is a considerable amount of flexibility that's uh, papered over in that argument. Um, but let, let's take the argument too, and I, because you, you know, we are talking about very smart people. They've all had yeah. advanced degrees. They are capable of retraining. They're capable of, you know, of 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 developing skills that are portable in other ways in administration, for example, mm -hmm. in developing new programs, in working in mentoring younger people, in in transdisciplinary uh, endeavors uh, to a considerable extent. Certainly, in my university, which is dominated by the sciences. These scientific departments are just um, uh, administrative shells. I mean, what, what we don't, what's chemistry? What's, bi what's biology? What's, you know, there are, uh, those are almost anti antiquated notions, mm -hmm. right? Even classics has reconfigured itself as, as Mediterranean studies and is enjoying enormous popularity. But if you, if you, you go that route and the university be, uh, becomes something like the University of Phoenix mm -hmm. or, uh, or, you know, that it's nimble. It, it, right. it, will, it, it, hi it hires professors like, on, uh, like a, a, a stevedoring gang uh, in, in, on the waterfront. You know, you're hired for this job only. Right. And, we, and we do have, I mean, uh, let me just, tenure is a dying institution. Yeah. Uh, when I started, uh, Fritz Machlup, the great Princeton economist, estimated that about 54% of university faculties were tenure or tenure track, and he said that was much too low. Uh, today, it's 35%. So it's a dying institution. Well, well, who's picking up the gap? Who's picking up the gap? Are these nomad adjunct part-time professors who teach a course here, a course there. It's impossible under those circumstances for, in the short term uh, to do any serious research. They're paid abysmally in the most, for the most part with few benefits. And if that is the promise we hold to our youth, or this is the kind of academic life they can expect, in the longer term, uh, there will be, a, there will be, it's inevitable, it seems to me, that there'll be a diminution in the quality of who we get at least in those disciplines where they cannot supplement their income through outside endeavors. And of course, then that has itself a distorting effect on the display of the faculty in the university. So I think our universities have been, I understand the economics of it. Yeah. You, 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 you pay $2,000, $1,500 a credit to have someone teach a course. They teach five courses at three other, three institutions, you know, it's a, in the, and the institution gets a lot of cheap labor, but, but with that cheap labor, it, it, it pays a cost. And I have been critical when I was in, when I played a role in AUP, I was for year after year, uh, 
I castigated the senior professorship, the senior professoriate for tolerating. They were insulated. They, they, you know, they were from from the from from that. But but why would they tolerate having lines taken from their departments and given to to part time uh, evanescent adjuncts? Uh, you know, uh, uh, catering to momentary student interest and and student interest can be momentary. Mm. Geography at one point was a dying discipline. I think the I think was Madison abolished its geography department, as I recall, and some others did. Now, of course, with global warming and migration of people over space, what is geography? Right? right. It's it, you can't get enough of them. Uh, now, should I think the, I think those decisions were short term and were were ill advised. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to come back to the other sort of element of that you mentioned, Wago, which is the probationary status. As you know, that's a relatively long uh, period of time in which faculty are held in probationary status before um, uh, their rewarded tenure. And um, as you know, the, the sort of uh, burden of proof uh, shifts as to uh, who has to demonstrate uh, the need to have them around. One of the kind of complaints you hear about um, the tenure system um, at times is uh, that that very probationary status tends to um, itself uh, impinge on academic freedom, that people in that long uh, probationary status are so worried about pleasing their colleagues, uh, not uh, ruffling feathers, um, that uh, they're, they're uh, fearful of speaking out, fearful of doing anything very controversial. And that has long-term consequences for the shape of the profession, the nature of their own careers, the intellectual ferment um, in universities uh, more generally. Um, so should we be worried about this sort of uh, long probationary status and how it uh, plays out relative to um, the kind of independence assistant professors enjoy and then the consequences of that? Uh, we have a hundred years history with this. I mean, this is, you know, uh, the, the logical end point of that argument is what the American Federation of Teachers used to demand uh, 50 years ago, and that is instant tenure. Uh, and everybody's free, but then you, then you lose the quality control altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the are, the, yes, the, the, it is a two-tier system, but like any system of apprenticeship, people have to pass it. Mm -hmm. Do you have to please others you'd rather not please or you disagree with? Well, I'm sorry, it's a human institution. And by the way, those disagreements are not always invidious. Uh, the president of Princeton, Harold Shapiro, mm -hmm. uh, was the uh, young assistant professor at the University of Michigan, I believe. Uh, and his department chairman was Peter Steiner. Uh, late Peter Steiner, who uh, later became president of the AUP and appointed me as his general counsel. And uh, uh, Shapiro, when I mentioned this, we were at a conference, uh, uh, his ears perked up. And he said, well, uh, Peter was responsible for my, for my career. And I said, in what way? He said he had written an article as a young assistant professor, showed it to his department chairman. And Peter said, oh, how good for you. It's a peer-reviewed journal and all that stuff. But you understand, he said, this line of reasoning is going nowhere. <laughs> now, what do you do when your department chairman says that the, the, the theory or the, or the model that you've built, you're building your career on is a dead end and you think he's wrong? Well, after a lot of agonizing and speaking to his wife, he told me and so on, he said, okay, he would drop that and pick up something else. And now looking back 20 years, it was a dead end. Everyone who was working on it went nowhere with it. Right. And Shapiro, of course, his career took off. So this avuncular advice is not always uh, you know, meretricious. The, the, but the flip side is this. 
there is a cadre of tenured professors who, because they have tenure, might be, take the Texas situation. Because you have tenure, you might be willing to stand up to defend your outspoken junior colleaguehood who's taking on some of these hot button issues. If there's no, no one there to defend them, then that person or she, he or she is just defenseless. Right. Uh, and I have seen that play out. It, 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 you know, not, not every institution uh, can, enjoys the rich tradition that, and tradition can be a protection. Uh, but the rich traditions of places like Princeton or, or, or Yale or like, uh, which, which can be a buttress. Lots of, lots of people are, uh, they need defense. And without a cadre of, the, of tenured faculty, they're, they're all alone. Yeah, well, certainly it was part of the theory behind the formation of the Academic Freedom Alliance. So those of us um, who uh, enjoy tenure uh, protections and are at uh, relatively good institutions like Princeton um, on uh, this front to have some responsibility um, to stick up uh, for faculty who are more vulnerable, um, either because they're younger in their careers and don't yet have tenure because they're at institutions, uh, they're less concerned and protective about uh, these things. Um, I think it's relatively easy to um, get so focused on your own immediate uh, issues and problems as a scholar uh, that you uh, don't necessarily think about uh, these larger professional considerations. And I think we're in a situation now in particular uh, where it really is incumbent upon those of us who enjoy some protections and uh, have relatively privileged positions um, to be willing to defend those who um, are not in such good position. Well, there are 1,800 accredited four-year colleges and universities, primarily these days now, in the public sector. So you have flagship institutions like Illinois for, or, 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 or Iowa. Mm -hmm. But then you've got all these regional uh, campuses and, and, you know, much more modest in, in some, in, 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 in what, the, with different traditions. And uh, I have debated some people from the Ivy League who seem to think that every place is like the Ivy League and that, you know, it would that it were, uh, but, but, it's, but it's not. So it's the northern Iowas that, you know, you, that you worry about more than you would the University of Iowa. Yeah, I think it's often hard to keep track of just how diverse American higher education really is. So there's a lot of different institutions. They have very different incentives and resources and, and traditions um, associated with them. And uh, sometimes we get very focused on a pretty small set um, of those institutions and, and what kinds of problems and issues uh, those kind of institutions are facing. And it's, uh, I think we sometimes overlook um, uh, what's going on in a lot of other institutions. Um, yeah, including at this point, not only sort of the, this, the second tier sort of public institutions, the Northern Iowa's, for example, but even the flagship institutions and in public university systems, um, I think uh, from for perspective of national conversations, uh, we wind up very focused on what's happening at Yale or Princeton um, or Harvard, not enough focus on what's happening um, at state universities across the country, um, especially relative to these kinds of disputes uh, involving tenure and academic freedom. And that's the center of gravity. I mean, if you look at, at Texas, yes, the University of Texas has been, faculty has been quite outspoken, but the threat is to all of higher education in the state. Yeah, I think that's right. And, it's, uh, um, uh, and, and I, I'm certainly at this point very concerned about sort of what the future of um, 
tenure and academic freedom generally looks like at a lot of these uh, public institutions. I don't take it for granted that this is going to be very secure in the future. Um, I'm a product of those institutions. I'm an alum of the University of Texas uh, myself. I value um, uh, what those uh, kinds of institutions can, can contribute. Um, and uh, I think it'd be a mistake to take them for granted uh, in terms of, of what they'll be able to do uh, down down the road. Well, one has to say, okay, let's assume that this uh, ridiculous idea of to get some traction. Yeah. Uh, you know, Texas is an interesting, the University of Texas is an interesting case because it's always been on the cusp of uh, international grandeur. And then it's Board of Trustees of the legislature do something that sets it back 20 years. There was a book, Our Invaded Universities by Ronnie Duggar that came out when I first started teaching at mm. SMU uh, in 1973. And he and, and he documented how the Board of Trustees, uh, uh, the Board of Regents, I guess, of the University of Texas was were sort of hell-bent on trashing the institution. And sort of every 20 years they go through that. So what kind of faculty will be attracted? Considering that one of the things in the United States uh, and I, I admire about our system is it is its competitiveness. Mm -hmm. A uh, professor is not a professor, a professor. I mean, we, we, it's not like certain European systems or you know, you're, in a, you're in a grid. Uh, so Texas has to compete with Berkeley or UCLA or, you know, department by department, discipline by discipline. And one of the, how do, it's incon, in, inconceivable to me that, that Texas will be able to compete for the kind of faculty it wants if it can't, or if it can't afford them tenure. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly that's right. It's a competitive disadvantage for high quality faculty. One of the interesting challenges I think for Texas at this point is um, uh, what kind of faculty do they want um, at, at those institutions? When I was growing up in Texas, um, uh, all the talk was about trying to build world-class institutions um, to have uh, uh, state universities that were um, at the very pinnacle um, of what higher education looked like, not only in the United States, but um, across the world uh, in its entirety. Um, that requires um, a certain orientation to what you're willing to do, what kind of resources you're willing to invest, what kind of protections and climate you're willing to build um, on a university campus. Um, it's not entirely evident to me that that's still the goal um, uh, in Texas, or at least uh, for some state politicians as to uh, what they want their universities to accomplish and as a consequence, what kind of faculty they necessarily want um, at those institutions. That's right. I think Florida is another case where they had great pretensions and then, then, and then, but then they step in uh, in this populist surge, in this populist moment, and make it impossible for them to recruit the kind of people who'd ever go there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, as you know, the right, so the the principles of academic uh, uh, freedom and faculty tenure uh, are laid down by the AUP uh, very early um, in the twentieth century. Um, it takes a process um, to actually get universities to adopt uh, tenure systems um, in the United States. Um, how much change, and, and, as you, and as you noted, sort of there's been uh, real pressure on tenure in the sense that um, there are large numbers of instructors at universities who don't get tenure protections at all. They're entirely outside uh, the tenure track. Um, but even for those who are in the tenure track, how much change has there been in the tenure system across time? Is it a, a very stable institution that, that um, uh, the way it gets laid out in the very beginning is the way it continues or have there been uh, significant modifications and alterations in sort of what the conventional model of tenure looks like? Well, as I, as I said, it's a shrinking institution. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a dying institution might be, you know, if I were being perverse about it. 
the major there was a uh, an assumption about uh, 20 well 20 30 years ago that once you get tenure unless you do something you know some horrible act of sexual mm-hmm. harassment or alcoholism or you 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 you're simply no longer current in the discipline at all i mean and by the way those people tended to be quietly negotiated with um uh that it began to be thought of as it was simply not the case of us of 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 being totally insulated from any further review Mm -hmm. now so there was a moment, a movement for po- what was called post-tenure review. Right. That we needed, and, and this was opposed, in fact, by, by significant administrators. I remember the vice president in charge of uh, Indiana University, Ehrlich, he came, I think he came from Stanford, saying, look, we're, we, are, we evaluate each other all the time. You know, your audience is evaluating me even as we speak. Right. The notion that professors are not subject to any form of evaluation. The evaluation is indirect, uh, but nonetheless can be annual salary reviews, for mm-hmm. example, uh, uh, research leaves, uh, all the kinds of things. They're, they're mostly, uh, uh, the, there's not the big stick of dismissal. But why that? But that's an industrial norm that if you can't fire someone summarily, somehow you, you, then they can't be doing their job. People don't, you know, just 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 plain wrong. Mm-hmm. I think two things have happened. One was the inst- many institutions institute this notion of post tenure review in the sense that we needed a more bureaucratized form of annual or uh, or biennial or however they did. Some cases right. it was five years. Yeah. Um, for the most part, those have turned out to be either innocuous or benign. That is to say, no one was fired as a result. They were, you just had a deeper paper record or bureaucratically mm-hmm. bound record that enabled a department head or a dean to sit down and say, well, something more has got to be done. So that something more may be more training. It may be a different course package. It may be ways, finding ways to uh, re- uh, reinvigor uh, someone who's going through a midlife crisis or so, you know, a pause. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as you said, of do, perhaps redirecting, uh, you know, the, the physicists tend, I think, to burn out quite young, but that I know there'll be physicists who I'm going to hear from. But I did have the late Polycarp Cush, who I worked with quite closely, who had a Nobel in physics did use the, the phrase young man's physics to me at one point. Mathematicians, on the other hand, I think, you know, they, they well, certainly I'll say law professors mature uh, like a fine wine. Uh, that's right, only better with age. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, what what happened in, in what, what we, uh, when the AEP was, in, and the AEP did not oppose that. I was involved in that. So long as we understood that a review was not a substitute for a due process hearing to dismiss someone for a cause a bad evaluation a checked box saying needs improvement three years in a row is not a substitute for a a a trial-like proceeding in which the administration has to prove cause to dismiss cause to dismiss meaning you're incompetent or you you neglect your duties and so on and what georgia did is collapse that and we warned at the time and there you know that 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 the, the, a, a, an evaluation is not the same as, as proof. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it is a blow, not only a blow, it basically eviscerates tenure. Uh, and therefore, the, kind of the ripple effect on academic freedom is very, very strong. Uh, I have not seen those evaluation systems work that way. That's why the Georgia uh, episode uh, was so arresting, where they just right. did it. Right. Yeah. The other thing that I, I have uh, seen, uh, and I don't know that the statistics have been compiled, in the old days, and that's you know when I was a young pup, um, if there was a problematic faculty member, tenured faculty member, as I said, the, co the, the common practice would be for an administrative officer, either mm -hmm. a vice president, a provost, a dean, to work out a quiet resignation. Avoid the uh, embarrassment and cost of uh, uh, of a hearing. If the facts were undisputed, there really was nothing to hear. Uh, it was to the institution's advantage and to the individual's advantage quietly to leave. And so, every now and then, you would heard uh, that one of the critics of tenure would say, "Well, how many tenured professors ever get dismissed?" We have had three cases on my campus where I have chaired the hearing committees for the dismissals of tenured professors in all three cases. You know, in two of the cases, the committee recommended dismissal and the board agreed. In one case, we recommended not dismissal unanimously. And that is now before the board. The administration wants to override the faculty's judgment. I can understand why. Uh, but I understand, I am told uh, by people around the country that there are proceedings of that nature all over the country. That Now, why is that? It may be that uh, the the cases are more marginal not to say they aren't there but they're more, di more difficult to make so the professor says thinks he or she has a chance yeah. of, of staying on um it may be that uh mobility it, it's not possible simply to move on to another institution having you know in those circumstances so uh, some of these systems of post-tenure review that have been adopted over the last few years seem to retain a lot of the traditional uh, procedural protections that tenure um, had always had. It was same decision makers involved, including faculty members involved in judging their peers, similar standards for when uh, faculty could be denied tenure uh, or, or, or have their tenure revoked um, in through a post-tenure review process. Some of what we see uh, being proposed and put on the table now for post-tenure review, though, looks pretty different, including some of the proposals um, that had come out of uh, Georgia for their public universities, um, in which not only would you, as a tenured faculty member, have to be evaluated more often, um, but those evaluations um, wouldn't come with all the same uh, procedural protections um, as we have seen in the past. Um, how big of a problem uh, do you perceive that to be in terms of uh, the kind of new proposals that are emerging about um, uh, what post-tenure review might look like? Well, uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, the, the debate uh, early on was whether the post-tenure review is meant to be uh, reformative or punitive. And the uh, center of gravity of, of most of these systems was that they were rehabilitative, that it, it would identify, we did, the assumption was that we didn't have a systematic way of identifying underachievers, those who are not performing up to the standards that we would expect. And we needed ways to, to, to identify them. And then connected to that would be efforts to ameliorate. Maybe they needed uh, a leave to get further training, uh, uh, more advanced education. They needed research. It, 
And the, some of the pushback, oddly enough, came from senior faculty who said, why are we devoting resources to pe under underperforming people mm -hmm. when those resources ought to go to us, the, the higher uh, performers? We need, we need more uh, research support and, and so on. So it was an interesting debate. Mm -hmm. but, it was, but the idea that, 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 that it was a kind of summative system that would result in, in termination as an ultimate sanction. That, that largely fell uh, out of view. That was uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, now that seems to be, at least in some quarters, the only one I'm, the one I'm most familiar with is, right. is, is Georgia, where the idea is you get evaluated by your department chairman or head. Yeah. It's purely an administrative procedure, and he, there's a box that checks. You know, you have no effective way of uh, challenging that evaluation is arbitrary or capricious or ill-considered or malevolent or, or just plain stupid. Right. Uh, but if you get three in a row, whatever it is, uh, then that, that is, is defined as cause to dismiss. Mm -hmm. um, that means you, tenure is gone. Tenure is not three checks in a box. Tenure, right. tenure means that if you think that, that uh, the professor is misconduct himself or herself or, or is, is, uh, is not meeting class, not me, not performing up to the level you would expect a tenured professor to perform. You got to prove it. it. Yes, it's a hearing. It's a due process. I've I, I've chaired three of them as mm -hmm. on this faculty. I'm also a labor arbitrator, and there are there are we haven't mentioned that a number of universities of faculties have collective bargaining. Yeah, uh, as a means of governance, it's a different way of doing it. In those systems, commonly uh, discipline of a faculty member is done by an arbitrator. You don't have a faculty hearing. You, you, uh, I've always been uh, chary of that because it res results in a final and binding judgment by one person right. who may not have the background or the benefit of collegial right. uh, uh, discussion. But I have, I have heard at least one. Uh, I'm trying to look back now. Uh, I've heard, no, I've heard several uh, cases involving non-tenured faculty, I've heard one as the arbitrator, one dismissal of a tenured professor on grounds of sexual harassment. Yeah. And in that case, I held that the administration had no had inadequate proof. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, there is no doubt that if he were subject to periodic review and there was a suspicion in the record that he had harassed a student, right. that, that would that might be enough to cause him after 20 years and research grants and a respectable body of uh, performance in the institution that he would, he would find himself dismissed without, without having any, any fair hearing at all. Right, right. One of the interesting features of the proposal that the Lieutenant Governor of Texas uh, made um, was uh, to divide up um, uh, the several different uh, components of, of reform. Um, so he proposed eliminating entirely tenure for newly hired faculty, but for those who are already in the system um, uh, to uh, create new causes for dismissal, teaching critical race theory, for example, um, as well as um, a speeded up um, evaluation system. So every year uh, you get reevaluated. How much flexibility do legislatures have to alter um, the tenure system for existing uh, faculty, which is seems to be okay, part of what Patrick is trying to work around? Yeah, let, let's take the three parts. Can an institution going forward yeah. say, well, we just don't have tenure anymore. If you come in, you're an at-will employee. Right. We can fire you, you know, there, there were institutions, I know of one that the faculty was on 30-day renewable contracts. Now, 
if if that's the way they want to run their shop, putting problems of accreditation and all of that aside, just as a legal matter, well, they can do it. The, right. This is their system. You come in knowing the rules. The rules are that there are no rules, right? right? Okay. The second part was, well, it is cause to dismiss a professor for what they teach. Right. Uh, they got two components of, of that. One is uh, what they're teaching may be protected by academic freedom. Mm-hmm. So you can't, if you define the institution's rules saying, but you have no academic freedom. Um, that gets us to where we started in this conversation, which yeah. is, doesn't the First Amendment apply? Right. And my position would be, yes, it does. Right. Uh, whether, by the way, whether uh, or not you have tenure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the third component is this notion of uh, adding a post-tenure review component that essentially eviscerates tenure. Now, yeah. it is a nice legal question whether a, um, an institution can do that. Can it change the tenure rules in such a way that the incumbent, incumbent not new faculty, yeah. But the incumbent faculty no longer enjoy uh, a critical incident, a key incident of what tenure is. And the answer to that is there's very little litigation that I know of. The, uh, the one I know best involved the Metropolitan State University of Denver. It's an institution I don't know that you've heard of. No. I didn't hear of it until I was an expert witness hired by the faculty. Mm-hmm. But it has 35,000 students. Uh-huh. It is a very large and prominent institution in Colorado. And that is what the, the regents of, the, of that university did. It changed the tenure rules to, to make it much easier to fire people in when the, uh, for financial reasons. And I testified that that, that that divested the faculty of a, vested, of a critical component of, what, of, a, of a protection of tenure. The Court of Appeals of uh, Colorado said, well, if it did, if Professor Finken is right, then that would be impermissible. Mm-hmm. And they remanded it for trial. That was the issue. That was, that was the legal issue. It went to trial. And the trial court said, Finken is right. This, this eviscerates tenure and they can't do it. That was based on contractual claims, not first that amendment was, claims? That was based entirely on contractual claims. Right, right. Right. And then, and and they so they had to reinstitute the old rules, but only for the previously tenured faculty. Right. And then a new regents, the, the Colorado sh- shifted from uh, de- Republican to Democratic control. A new board of regents came in, and they 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 did away with the the, the Republican effort altogether. Uh-huh. Right. It was right. very much political. It was very very political matter. But the answer is there is certainly um, a possibility. It, it depends on the on the organic law of the state. It is certainly possible um, that uh, a, a retroactive uh, retrenchment of a core element of tenure would not be. Would not, it's also possible insofar as there is an interplay of, of contract and constitutional law, putting aside the First Amendment, um, of, an, of an impairment of a contract under the Constitution. So you, there, there, there's, law in, there's law to apply in that situation. Right, right. And for public universities, obviously, they're confronted with those kind of constitutional concerns, including impairment of contracts, potentially through the contracts clause uh, for these um, state institutions. We've also seen some moves um, at private universities uh, to 
uh, not do the kind of wholesale rethinking, or at least I haven't seen much uh, in the way of examples of private universities doing a wholesale rethinking um, of tenure in quite the way that Dan Patrick is proposing for uh, Texas public universities. Um, but we do see a lot of suggestions that we ought to um, uh, have modifications to uh, uh, current academic freedom protections um, in order to be able to dismiss faculty who, uh, for example, threatened uh, values that are important to the university uh, community, uh, such as commitments to uh, equity and inclusion, um, or that affect uh, the ability of the university to recruit students or faculty to the university, or we might um, add in some other cases, uh, uh, make it uh, difficult for the university to attract uh, donors um, uh, to the university. Well, well let's, yeah. let's, yeah, let's break that down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the donor question goes back tonight to the 19th century. Right. Uh, the, the, Alton Parker was a judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals, ran for president. Uh, and he wrote an uh, article, The Rights of Donors. The donors have the same rights that faculty were claiming. In other words, to insist that what be taught be what they have paid the money to teach. That right. was the Scott Nearing case in 1914, that uh, he was fired as an instructor at the Wharton School on grounds that uh, John Wharton would never have uh, given the money to, uh, to endow an institution with, to propagate socialism. And Scott Nearing was... A socialist. Right. It's one of the very early uh, academic, you know, prominent academic freedom cases in the United States. The other one you've talked about uh, this is, is really very serious because uh, we everything we have looked at we, has concerned efforts to repress uh, valid academic discourse from groups outside the university out of their political agenda. Right. Strongly felt. I understand all of that. Right. Um, and that is a strong strain in uh, the history of, the, of academic freedom. Right. What we are witnessing now, and I cannot say, I'm trying to see were there any historical precedents that I, I'm not aware of any. What we are seeing now is that groups on the left from within the university are seeking to su suppress academic speech. And when I say academic speech, I mean was permissibly grounded academic discourse because as you say they it, it there's a higher value to diversity welcomeness right. of of disfavored groups that resonates very strongly with certain faculty and student groups and administrators have proven uh quite willing to, to accommodate them and uh and indeed in one case marquette university case the university actually argued to the supreme court of, of, of wisconsin Academic freedom is just one value right. among others that go to the core of this institution that we have to accommodate. Well, if you don't have academic freedom, as academic freedom is something that you accommodate to achieve other ends, then as far as I'm concerned, I think and historically, you're simply not a university at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. Academic freedom is the defining condition of the university. And my fear is this, that the more administrators and faculties are willing to have, be dragooned yeah. uh, and sacrifice their freedoms on the altar of some higher good from the left inside the university, they will become much more vulnerable to the kind of attack from outside the universe. Because after all, at that point, it's simply a matter of whose ox is being bored. Right, right. Which, which value trumps the academic value of free of free academic utterance. 
you say it's this, well, we say it's that, and by the way, we pay the tune. We, so uh, it's a danger. We're in a, we're in very powerless time, as I have not seen this uh, sort of pincer movement, right? Uh, conjoined uh, historically. Um, let me give you an example. There are, uh, for reasons I don't understand, the academic left has decided to make a bugbear of the state of Israel. Now, I'm not defined, defending by any means the policies of that uh, country with respect to the so-called occupied territories or whatever you would define, right? Mm -hmm. which is under a military occupation. Okay. And there was a Gaza war. And the number of academic units I know in California and around, I know my own university, in the name of the unit, in the name of urban planning, the urban planning program or the department of the University of Illinois Champaign stands in solidarity with the Palestinian people and condemns the state of Israel for, okay, on and on and on. Fine. Any faculty member is free to sign a petition to that effect. Put his name to it, go out, stand on a soapbox, whatever. But they're doing it in the name of the component of the institution. Mm -hmm. It is the department of let's say gender studies that takes that position, not the professors in the department. Uh, I don't know as yet that any administration has responded to the use of the institution, the, the uh, 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 using the institution's imprimatur mm -hmm. to validate uh, a political position. Uh, and it's, 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 I know on this campus, there's been some discussion, well, isn't that academic freedom? Yeah. The answer to that is no, it isn't. It isn't. This, there, there is a statement of on government of colleges and universities negotiated in 1966, which says the question is, who speaks for the university? Right. That's a question of university policy. Is it university policy that a department can have a foreign policy? Right, right. If so... Why can't the College of Law, for example, say that we believe that the Constitution of the United States is firmly committed to the notion of equal protection, mm -hmm. that the Constitution is colorblind, that therefore there are no racial passports to success in America, and we therefore stand four square against affirmative action in admissions and public institutions of higher education. Right. Could the College of Law in its name adopt such a resolution? Well, our administration hasn't said they can or they can't. Right. They won't grasp that nettle. Right. And the, the refusal to come to grips with this sort of manipulation from within makes them much more vulnerable to attack from outside. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's, a, uh, I think, a great place to wrap up because it certainly uh, resonates with a lot of what uh, we've been concerned about, that there are threats uh, coming from all sides at this point, and unfortunately, both inside and outside uh, universities, and uh, makes it a, a particularly challenging uh, time. Uh, it's, as you say, these things come in waves, and so maybe this too will pass. Um, but uh, in the meantime, um, I think we have to uh, be aggressive in trying to understand the nature of the challenges and uh, try to organize to um, uh, grapple with them. Thank you for inviting me. Enjoy. I really appreciate your uh, joining us. Um, the Academic Freedom Alliance has released a public statement objecting to uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's uh, remarks on tenure. Um, uh, there'll be a link uh, to that statement um, and some of the other documents we discussed um, in the show notes to this episode. 
Uh, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on your platform, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.